From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Heidi Ganahl wants to be Colorado's first Republican governor in 16 years. And if she's elected, she says she'll shrink state government. And so what I would like to do is approach this as if we have a spending problem, not a revenue problem. It's part of her plan to fight inflation. I'll ask where the cuts would come from. We'll discuss the high cost of housing, too, and the future of how Coloradans commute. Also, abortion, fentanyl, and her running mate, who's previously disputed the outcome of the presidential election. Plus, something Ganahl says is close to her heart, teen mental health. We've got to have a governor who will talk about it all the time. Like, kids, it's okay not to feel okay. Here are some resources. Here are some other kids who've been through this. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Coloradans are about to pick a governor. And this week, you'll hear from the candidates on inflation, housing, crime, transportation. Tomorrow, Democratic incumbent Jared Polis joins us. Today, it's Heidi Ganahl. She's currently the only Republican to hold statewide office as a CU regent. And now the entrepreneur from Castle Rock wants the top statewide job. We sat down late last week. Thanks for being with us again. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Let's start with the wallet. Our reporters are hearing a lot this year from Coloradans worried about rising prices for some of the most basic goods. Here is Desiree Vigil. We spoke to her at a Walmart in Thornton. Not buying fast food anymore. Gas sparingly as needed only. Thinking about when I'm going to make trips, right? What is one step if you are elected governor, that you'd pursue to help reduce inflation? Yeah, inflation is terrible here in Colorado. I think that's tied to a lot of the red tape and regulations that have been put in place. The governor has put in lots of new full-time employees and grown the size of government quite a bit, um, which adds some stress to the economy. And also just a lot of taxes and fees and new programs that small business owners are expected to follow or implement that are difficult to navigate when you're trying to make it work right now with the stress of finding employees. And, you know, the small business owners that I know want to pay their employees more. They want to find employees, which is challenging right now. But the economy is putting the squeeze on. Inflation is putting the squeeze on. Okay, so you've cited there red tape and regulations, which, you know, is kind of easy to point to as a generic bundle over there. Give me an example of something you would change as governor in that arena. Well, I think that we've got to give more freedom and leeway to small business owners to make decisions about how to best compensate their employees and take care of their business. So as an example, there are some pretty aggressive programs that are being implemented for small business owners, like the Family Leave Program, which they have great intentions. I I mean, as a business owner and a CEO, I've always made sure Family Leave is a big part of what we offer employees. Um, But to decide for the employer how that should be implemented, I'm not sure I would agree with that. Also, the unemployment insurance fraud that went on during COVID is hitting small business owners in their pocketbooks because their rates are going up a lot. 
when we got the COVID dollars, we didn't refill that fraud as much as we should have. And so rates are going to go up. Also, property insurance is going up. The competition for space is going up. So rent is also very expensive right now for small business owners. The list goes on and on. Uh, Family leave has not taken effect yet. So you're pointing to something that can't have influenced inflation yet. Well, it will. And you asked how I would address inflation as governor. So there's not much I can do. I can't undo that. But I would just want to be very transparent with business owners and work with them to figure out how to... um, accommodate the law, but also to make sure that they can make it work financially and they're not going to have to reduce their number of employees or go out of business because of it. I also think that like the retail delivery fee, I think that was a huge hit on consumers, but also on business owners. They're expected to pass that on or absorb it. And that's a lot of money when you add it up. So this is a fee that uh, was just imposed that is on deliveries. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea is to pay for infrastructure. You talked about the competition for business space. And yet, aren't we seeing vast, empty office space? That doesn't jibe with what I understand the market to be. No, that's not at all what I'm hearing right now. It's very difficult to be able to afford space right now. Prices have gone up dramatically. Even there there may be more open space, but... There definitely is. Yeah, but um, it doesn't mean they're reducing the prices because they're paying higher property taxes, higher, higher in, um, insurance fees. And generally, the rate of inflation is affecting the rate of rent and the ability to do business. So, uh, Now, you talked about uh, what employers pay employees. Uh, do you disagree with Colorado's increasing minimum wage? Is that what you mean? I don't even know that it's a hot topic right now. It's more about like the actual minimum wage. It's more about what you have to pay to get good people. And so the free markets are kind of ramping that up anyway. Um, you know, we have restaurants and I'm a, I own a couple other um, small businesses and you know, the market says that we have to pay people a lot more anyway. So I think that happens naturally with the free market. When you're a small business owner, you want the best employees. You want to compensate them well. And right now, it's it's very expensive. There is one similarity between you and the man you wish to unseat, Jared Polis, and that is you both wish to eliminate the state income tax. It is a huge source of revenue for Colorado, about $11 billion a year. Where would you cut government spending? You mentioned, for instance, that uh, there have been a lot of hires in state government. Yes. So I disagree with Jared Polis's approach to grow government in Colorado. We're now one of the top employers. If you rank employers in the state, state government's pretty high up there. Um, We also have added 4,000 full-time employees into the agencies that run our lives every day and approved 85 new taxes and fees in Colorado that are really affecting people's lives, their day-to-day pocketbooks. And so what I would like to do is approach this as if we have a spending problem, not a revenue problem. Um, We have doubled the state budget in the last decade, almost $40 billion, a couple billion in the last few years um, under Jared Polis. And I would like to, number one, talk to the voters or take something to the voters about dealing with TABOR refunds and seeing if we can't take our TABOR refunds. Instead of getting checks, you get income tax refunds. We'll ratchet those down as we get the surpluses, and those will become permanent. I would also like to have a self-audit. In my first few weeks as governor, I will order that. We'll look for waste and fraud. The goal is to, you know, potentially we find 5 to 10 percent in a huge budget. I think that's probable. 
Then we'll also look at a hiring freeze and make sure that we address the vacancy funds that are waiting to hire new folks into the government. Ranks. That doesn't get you close well, to 11 I'm billion. Done, right? okay. I'm still going. <laughs> We've got a lot of special exemptions we can stop doing going forward. I'm not going to say I'm going to take them away from current companies. Name but, one. Um, I don't have one handy right now. I'll get back to you. Okay. If that's okay. Sure. But it was offered to Disney to come to Colorado as an example. And that Jared Polis said, hey, you know, we'll give you a sweet deal to come to Colorado. That's the kind of thing we need to stop. We need to level the playing field. And we've got to make sure that everyone pays their fair share, companies at least. Now, you mentioned the increase in state jobs. According to a local think tank, the Common Sense Institute, the greatest number of new hires has gone to the state's military and veterans division. Higher education, public health and public safety also showed gains. So which which department would you cut first? Let's get specific. Because... 200 new employees in transportation, which are mostly about monitoring carbon output and monitoring the environment. Not that I don't want clean land, clean air, clean water, because I do. But I don't think hiring more bureaucrats is the way to do it. Public health. Um, they have changed the way public health works. Public health has so much more power right now than they did. And we still have an emergency order in place to give that power to public health, which I disagree with. So that's one of the agencies I would like to take a look at and see if we can't reduce the scope and size of it and give more autonomy back to local municipalities. Now, when it comes to the environment, you talk about bureaucrats. You know, that sounds like you have some disdain for state workers. Oh, absolutely not. Um, I have I have the mo- utmost respect for the people who work for our state. It's an amazing place. You just want fewer of them. Well, I just want to take a look at how we can create efficiencies and streamline the bureaucracies. I don't believe state government should be one of the largest employers in the state. That's not how I operate, and I think that we can do better there. But I also want to take it slow and be cognizant that we have a lot of great folks that work in the state agencies and just need to take it slow, take a look at it and see if we can streamline and um, coordinate better between the agencies and, you know, at least put a hiring freeze on for now. The other thing that will happen when we go to zero income tax, as we've seen in other states, there are eight other, soon to be nine other states that are at zero income tax. They attract a lot of new business and industries. Um, we've looked at that with economists. We think that will add back into the coffers about two to three billion dollars. There's a measure on this year's ballot, Prop 121, to drop the state income tax from 4.55 percent to 4.4. Just quickly on the record, do you support that? I will always support reducing the state income tax. (laughs) Okay. Now, speaking of the state income tax, the highest earners would see fewer deductions if a different ballot measure, this is Proposition FF, Mm -hmm. passes. Uh, The additional state revenue would pay for universal free school lunch. Mm -hmm. Does that have your support? I haven't had a chance to look at it, but I do want to make sure that every child has healthy access to healthy food and lunches, so I'm certainly open to it. The spirit of it, you seem to agree with? The spirit of it. Republican Heidi Ganahl is running for governor. She wants to unseat Democrat Jared Polis, who joins us tomorrow. Ganahl's campaign got back to us with an exemption she'd eliminate, citing a new law that gives businesses a tax credit if they provide alternatives to a car commute, be it transit, bike share, or ride share, scooters too. Also, a clarification related to Disney 
In April, after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis criticized both Disney and the board of Twitter over separate controversies, Polis tweeted that both companies could find a home in Colorado, but he never suggested specific financial incentives. Again, Polis joins us tomorrow. Whoever's elected governor this year will have some mopping up to do from a pandemic that has wreaked havoc on our health and our economy. Republican Heidi Ganahl says Democrats exacerbated things and she should be the one to clean up. Back to our conversation recorded late last week. Let's talk uh, about your transportation plan. So infrastructure here is funded largely through the gas tax and a bevy of fees. My understanding, Heidi Ganahl, is that you want to convert those fees into taxes that would require voter approval. So would that be an increase overall in revenue or just like a wash? It's a wash, but it's calling out fees to be taxes, which they are. It's taking the pot of money and actually increasing it through bringing in private investment and some matches in the general fund over 10 years. But we're going to sunset it after 10 years. These are very specific projects that we're going to pay for. I think once we're transparent with them about how the taxes work, where the money's going, my idea is to take it to the voters and say, here's a list of specific projects that transportation experts around the state have said are fair as far as mapping out the entire state and where we can reduce congestion. And one of the things that we all care about is the environment, the ozone, the smog that layers over our city. One of the biggest causes of that is congestion. And we've got that at 270 and I-25. So my plan addresses those two specific pain points um, very specifically, along with projects across rural Colorado. Is that lane expansion in those previous examples? It's partly lane expansion. It's, you know, making sure that we have access to an HOV or paid lane, too, so that our buses can get across the city easier as well, as I am supportive of public transport. And I want to make sure that we have lots of options for people. But right now, expecting people to... um, buy an electric car if they're a struggling mom that has two kids that they've got to get to daycare and and school and or take public transportation that's not always realistic for folks and we've also got an auto theft problem so that's adding to the frustration there so you talk about being stuck in traffic as contributing to uh, ozone and to climate change but you know building out lanes This happened, for instance, uh, in a project called T-Rex, I-25 through Denver. You build it and they will come. And it just means that there's often more traffic. Uh, It may make a dent for a little while. But aren't you contributing to the very problem you're trying to solve by just building more highways out? My transportation experts don't believe that. Um, We've got to fix the roads we have and make them more efficient and easier for people to get across our state. That's the intention of the transportation plan I'm proposing. Here's a key difference between you and Governor Polis. Uh, You say he focuses too much on mass transit and alternative vehicles. And in announcing your transportation plan recently, you said, quoting here, Jared Polis is stealing one of our basic freedoms. Driving gives you the freedom to go where you want, when you want. I'll say that Polis is also spending billions of dollars on road construction and expansion. Uh, But indeed, ozone pollution is getting worse. Climate change is accelerating. So where would a Ganahl administration make investments in public transit? Because that is also freedom for some people, Heidi Ganahl, who don't wish to own cars. Yeah, for some people, but we've got to make sure we're maxing out or making as efficient as possible the public transportation we already have. And right now, it's not 
utilized to the maximum capability. So I think that's one conversation. Another conversation is this EPA situation around our ozone. And Jared Polis decided not to submit the science to the EPA that would have allowed us to get an exemption from the mandate to use blended fuels, which is going to cost us 30 to 40 cents more a gallon, maybe up to 50 cents a gallon starting in 2024. He has now vehemently, he has changed his mind and is now vehemently fighting against the idea of this more expensive Ryan blend of so gas. Ryan likes so many things. He's, he does, he does, he creates the problem and then he says, I'm the one to fix it. This is not the right approach to fixing this problem. All he had to do was submit the report when it was due, and we wouldn't be in this situation. The EPA, by the way, estimates it's three cents per gallon. They're not correct. (laughs) They are not being honest and, and real with the people of Colorado. We have lots of experts who are saying that's not accurate. So you think that that is going to put more of a squeeze on Coloradans? Well, absolutely. That will put a squeeze. Also, you're expecting truckers and buses and and a lot of transportation vehicles to go electric too far too fast. The major automakers are all in on electric vehicles. GM's goal is that its new vehicles will be electric by 2035. Ford says 40 to 50 percent of its new models will be electric by the end of this decade. I understand you drive a Tesla. Uh, Aren't you proof that adoption is occurring? You know, I also have a Chevy Express van with 140,000 miles on it that I drive my kids around mostly. But yeah, I do want to support the drive towards renewables and electric where it makes sense. But how is our grid going to support if we all of a sudden go all electric cars? That's not we don't have the capabilities to do that. So, again, I just believe it's too far, too fast. It's too expensive for most people to go out and buy a new electric car. Um, But gas is expensive. Gas is expensive, but do, do you think a mom making $40,000 a year raising two kids can go out and buy a $50,000 electric car right now and then pay to have a charging station put in her garage because she doesn't have time to go sit at the mall and charge her car for a couple hours? That doesn't work in reality. You've also got to think about the people who live across rural Colorado. You're expecting the truckers, the ranchers, the farmers to make sure that they have an electric car and that they have a charging station. That's not realistic. And a lot of this state is rural. And again, um, the current governor is making policy decisions and driving towards a goal for the metro area, which isn't helpful to the rest of Colorado. Do you trust the science that people are contributing to climate change? Yes. I want to talk about housing. This is another topic that came up a lot when CPR reporters talked to voters around the state earlier this summer. Here's Richard Montoya of Thornton. To buy a house, it's half a million dollars everywhere in Colorado, 600000 700000 So it's just insane. I mean, I make pretty good money, you know, I, I think anyway. And you can't even afford to buy a house. When we spoke with you before the primary, you cited regulations as a big driver of what it costs to build a home. I wonder, uh, these months later, if you could name a regulation or aspect of code you'd like to remove to make that cheaper. Well, it's not necessarily the governor's job to change the codes. Those are mostly local. But the governor's job is to be inspirational, be a leader, have big, bold ideas about how we can transform housing in Colorado, um, how I can encourage local municipalities to make it easier to develop affordable housing. Give me an example of how you would encourage a municipality to do that. Um, We could bring some experts here to show how other cities have transformed malls, older malls or retail centers into housing developments. We have... Is there one you like? Oh, gosh. You want me to think of an old 
Oh, I don't know. I it's it's an interesting idea. The idea of you converting mean from around a the sea. I mole. think actually, I live in Lone Tree. I think Lone Tree is doing a very good job, and Mayor Millet's looking at all kinds of options for how to transform places in our city to make it livable for people who are young, can't afford you know a half million dollar house. So we've got some really amazing, innovative leaders in Colorado that can be examples for how we do it. Lone Tree is one of them, and I just think we've got a lot of opportunity to kind of go big and be a leader on this front. You know, tiny homes, modular homes. Um, there's a veterans community that's developing modular homes um, so that veterans can afford to live down in Southern Colorado. I'm learning a lot about some really cool options that we could talk about, inspire local municipalities to try, pilot, um, share ideas, you know, look at innovation in housing. How do we create in dense situations like community housing? So you have an old building and you make it so that there's a community kitchen and there's a community living area and then they don't need as big of a living space, you know, for their actual unit. So I I hear in all of this specific examples of what you'd like to see, Mm -hmm. you know, those examples are out there. Uh, I'm a little unclear on what it means for a governor to inspire. Help me understand that. This is an intractable problem. And I think there are people who are hungry for specific solutions. Well, take as an example, uh, several leaders just went from Colorado to Houston to see the homeless problem. They're doing the same thing. They're trying to find solutions that work around the country. And as the governor of Colorado, it's my job to inspire people to look at, think outside of the box, look at different ways to solve problems. I'm a problem solver. That's what I've been my whole life. And I do big things. Would you put money along with this? For instance, you explore the mall route and here's some state funds. Perhaps for a pilot program or to incentivize a community to try something new. But again, you you know this from talking to me before, not a big fan of the government spending their dollars to do that. I believe the government has very basic things that they should take care of. But private industry and charities and communities can certainly get together and I can be a coordinator and a collaborator with them to help them come together and do big, bold things. Colorado's crime rates are increasing. What needs to be done to bring them down? Well, um, there are a few bills that have been problematic to crime in Colorado and fentanyl. One was, of course, decriminalizing fentanyl. And we can have compassion for addicts, but also make sure that fentanyl, which is a poison that's destroying our community, um, is addressed. And we've got to give law enforcement and ICE agents the ability to stop the flow of fentanyl across our southern border of Colorado. They are telling me directly that their hands are tied. They can't do a whole lot. They can't coordinate when they know who a drug dealer is or a trafficker. The other thing we've got to do is have new leadership, I believe, in some of the agencies and on the parole board that actually um, that want to go more tough on crime. And it's pretty easy to stay out of jail right now, whether it's the PR bonds or this catch and release attitude or mentality about the current administration. We just have very different ideas about how to solve this problem, but it's one we've got to take head on. I mean, we're number one in all the wrong things, whether it's bank robberies, property crime, auto theft. It's the number one issue I hear around the state, not just in Denver, but all over Colorado. The Colorado legislature passed a major criminal justice reform bill two years ago. Among other things, it requires law enforcement officers to wear body cameras, changes the actions they can take during protests, allows officers to be sued individually for misconduct. Uh, In your opinion, did that law go too far? From speaking with law enforcement leaders, parts of it 
they believe are good. Other parts make it very, very difficult to recruit and retain talent in law enforcement. And that's a huge struggle right now. So I don't believe anyone's actually been um, sued yet or had a successful lawsuit on that front. But I think it's a very... um, It's a very concerning trend to start allowing the public to sue individual officers. I believe most of the officers have good hearts. They're trying to do their best to protect us and our communities. Are there some, you know, bad folks? Yes. And there are other ways to deal with it besides taking immunity away from all officers. I don't believe that's the right approach. And neither did they. They said it's very difficult to get people to um, want to be a law enforcement officer now. It sounds to me that in a Ganahl administration, law enforcement would very much have your ear. Law enforcement would, but also communities. I want to repair the damage that's been done, you know, this rift in some communities where they don't trust law enforcement and law enforcement is, you know, worried about their relationship with the community. But the provision you just cited was intended to do just that. I just disagree with the approach. Let's talk about COVID for a moment. President Biden recently said the pandemic is over. Do you think that's right? Well, I don't think COVID's going away anytime soon. We've got to be cognizant of it and aware when we have outbreaks. But I do think that um, the emergency orders, the mandates, the quarantines, the instant rush to shut everything down, I think we can relax and not just run there as quickly. So people are exhausted. They're tired of dealing with this. Um, It's been a long couple years. We've got a lot of healing to do. We've learned a lot about how to deal with a pandemic if it happens again. Right now, the most important thing I'm focused on is the children's mental health crisis, which we already had high suicide in Colorado before. Youth suicide in particular. Yeah. and, And now it's a lot worse. And Children's Hospital tells me it's getting worse by the day. They don't have the resources. They can't handle the load of children who need help. It's taking four or five months for a young person to get an appointment. We can't put that on schools. They don't have the health, mental health counselors to take care of this. I mean, they can help, but oh gosh, I, I'm really worried about our mental health care system in Colorado and our children right now. Let me um, point to a tension I'm hearing uh, so that you can maybe clear it up. I hear that you want there to be more mental health support for young people. But at the beginning of this conversation, uh, the theme was very much shrinking the role of government. So square those for me, please. Well, it's how you spend the dollars, right? It's making sure that you're investing in the right things. And I think there's a lot of um, money being spent on programs that aren't working, that aren't moving the needle in the mental health space specifically. I've met with a lot of organizations. Um, They're very siloed, the different approaches to helping young people, but all people. And so you may have an addiction center here, um, um, another, you know, a group of mental health professionals over here. You have a hospital over here. Not a lot of coordination that I'm seeing. And I know Governor Polis has tried to address that, but it's not working the way we're doing it right now. We've got to change the way we do funding. We've got to make it outcome-based so that the goal is to get people better and not stuck in the system. I think we've got to create flexible, nimble facilities that focus on different you know, problems, smaller hospitals and clinics that are more nimble and flexible that can help people addressing um, addiction, teen suicide, et cetera. We've got to have a governor who 
will talk about it all the time. Like, kids, it's okay not to feel okay. Here are some resources. Here are some other kids who've been through this. Um, you know, a public education campaign maybe on how they can get some help. We've got the new 988 hotline and other resources. So the nat- national uh, suicide hotline. Yeah, I just want to be a voice for children right now. Um, so many are struggling. So many have been isolated. And drugs are one of the go-tos. You know, one of the highest youth suicide rates is among trans youth. Yes. But you've really um, kind of villainized them in this campaign. Oh, my goodness. Not at all. I, I, have, I have so much compassion for if you're talking about trans children or grownups, whatever. But, um, oh, gosh, Ryan, I, I care so much for all children. And I have so much compassion for children who are... Um, Apparently, you did sign on with NINEPAC. No, I didn't. And NINEPAC is a federal uh, pack. I spoke at the event about the struggles that a mom was dealing with whose daughter was assigned to a roommate that the school didn't tell her but was a biological male. And she found out only through a text from the person at the last minute. She didn't feel comfortable with that. And she was shocked that the school hadn't been forward about it. And they're actually... You say biological male. That's a trans person. Well, you know... We've got to also respect young women's ability to feel safe and comfortable in situations, too. Biological women's ability to do that. So, you know, this is all new stuff to a lot of people. We've got to work through it. We've got to be able to have brave conversations about it. And to just label someone anti-trans or, you know, um, that the whole Republican Party is like that, that's not accurate at all. That's not accurate. And it's not helpful to the kids who are dealing with these situations. And guess what? We worked through it. The daughter and the young person who is trans are friends now. They're good friends. And it just took some conversations and getting comfortable with the situation. So you guys in the media have to stop this. Let's talk about abortion. Um, You've said you would support a ban on abortion except in cases of rape, incest, and the health of the mother or fetus. Uh, You oppose a state law that protects abortion in Colorado. U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham has proposed that abortions be banned federally after 15 weeks, uh, with the same exceptions that you support. Would you like to see a federal ban and thus removing Colorado's autonomy on this? Well, first of all, I haven't declared any statement about what I would ban or not ban. What I've said is I'm a mom of four. I have young kids twins that are 10 years old that were born early. I've been through miscarriages. I've been through in vitro. I've had quite a journey to building my family. I have so much compassion for women who are facing all kinds of things when it comes to building their family or not and making those decisions. Also, I am pro-life, but with exceptions for the horrific instance of rape and incest and serious health issues of the baby and mom. But what I will say, what I will pledge is that any significant changes to the abortion law should go to the people of Colorado. It should be a vote to the people of Colorado. That's the right approach. And I've got to find common ground. So any change in Colorado on abortion, you want to go to the people. But can I get you on the record? uh, That choice would be abrogated completely if the federal government put a ban in place. Would you support a federal abortion ban? I believe it's a state's rights issue. That's why I supported Roe versus Wade being turned down, because I believe it's a decision of the states. 
Your running mate, the man who would serve as your lieutenant governor, is Danny Moore, a business consultant and 24-year veteran of the U.S. Navy. In the past, Mr. Moore has questioned the validity of the 2020 election and Colorado's mail-in voting system. Uh, In a 2021 social media post, he wrote that President Biden was elected, quoting here, by the Democrat Steele. Uh, Voters weeded out many election deniers in Colorado's primary. As you were vetting, Mr. Moore, why wasn't this a non-starter for you? Because Danny addressed it right after that. He said he was upset. He was fired up after the election. And he cleared it up within a couple weeks or months after that. So it's in the past. We both agree that Joe Biden's our president. He's our commander in chief. I picked Danny because he's a really amazing human being. He grew up in the projects of Louisiana. He went into the Navy. He's one of eight kids. His mom had her first baby at 14 or 15. He has an amazing family. And he retired from the Navy after 24 years at the highest enlisted rank of Master Chief. Then he went out and started a business with one employee, grew it to over 100 employees now, and is a great entrepreneur. And he has a heart for kids like I do. He's African-American. He wants to make sure that minority kids in Colorado have a voice and that they have a bright future. Right now, 95% of kids, African-American and Hispanic kids in Denver public schools, cannot read at grade level. That is a tragedy. That's the example of one thing we have to go after to fix. And Danny and I are completely dedicated to doing that. Now, earlier in the conversation, you criticized Jared Polis for changing his mind about stuff. But in this case, on something as fundamental as an American election, it's okay that Danny Moore has changed his mind on whether that was a steal. Boy, Ryan, that's a stretch. There is a lot. Uh, there's a big difference between changing your mind about whether fentanyl should be allowed in Colorado as a misdemeanor or whether the Green New Deal should be implemented fully here and destroy the energy industry in Colorado or, you know, uh, there's just a list of things that Jared Polis has gone back and forth on. But Moore's change of views on an American election is that's huge. So what do you say to Hillary Clinton or Stacey Abrams or other Democrats who had problems with previous elections? Stacey Abrams still hasn't conceded. That's not fair. Why is it so hard for us to have open, honest conversations? The better question instead of, you know, what happened in the election is why do so many people feel uncomfortable about the elections, whether it was the 2016 election with Trump or the 2020 election with Biden? Again, this goes back to having tough conversations where we listen to people and their concerns instead of shutting them out or calling them names. That's not the American way. We have free speech in this country for a reason, and we should be able to question what the government does and how our elections are operated. We have a pretty good election system here in Colorado, but who's to say it can't get better? Who's to say we can't build trust better with the people of Colorado? That's my job as a leader. There's something you said to me in our last interview that I would like more clarity on, and it has to do with an attorney named John Eastman. While you were regent, CU named him a visiting professor of conservative thought. Eastman was also a legal advisor and key player in President Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election. He left CU shortly after the insurrection. And when you and I spoke in June, you distanced yourself from Mr. Eastman. Let's listen back. Well, I'm glad you brought this up so I can clear up a few things. First of all, I've never met Mr. Eastman. I've never talked to him. I was not involved in his hiring. We are not involved in their hiring as regents. 
But I did support the Benson Center, and I was saying that there were a lot of fantastic scholars that went through the Benson Center. He was collectively grouped into that. Uh, Heidi Ganahl, since you told me that, Nine News and other outlets have reported on emails that show you tried to arrange a meeting with Mr. Eastman. Uh, It never happened because he got COVID. Why weren't you transparent with me? I that. was transparent. I've never met with him. I've never spoken to him. But you tried and I you try, wanted I to. have lunch with every conservative scholar that comes to see you. And this was far before any of this stuff happened. It was back in September or October. So it didn't happen. We did one email exchange about, hey, let's go to lunch. He got sick and I never followed up. He never followed up. And that's the extent of it. What did you want to talk to him about? Like I said, I meet with every conservative visiting scholar that comes to see you. I have for years. At that point, he was not involved in any of this. I, I just want to be clear on the timing, because on October 6th, 2020, mm-hmm. you wrote, I have heard wonderful things about you and would love to get together if you are available. So that's just before that's a month before the election. Right. He was not involved. As far as I knew, he had no involvement in the election. So it so- was not your intention to talk about any early rumblings about overturning the election. I just want to get that clear on the record. No. If you lost the race, would you concede? Yes. As you've been running for office over the last several months and touring this state, I wonder if there's been something where you've changed your mind on a position because of something you've heard. Oh, certainly. I've learned so much about all the issues and surrounding myself with experts, whether it's water, where I have 27 water leaders from around this state that are helping me create my water policy, or farmers and ranchers and the challenges they face. Let's let's talk water there. Sure. What, what was a, an epiphany, an aha moment for you? Oh, that we cannot cede our decision-making to the federal government, that Colorado water decisions should be made by Colorado Water. I believe that... Um, We've got to do everything we can to protect what's rightly ours. And that's being hamstrung right now by storage projects that are not able to go through. So a lot of our water is flowing out of the state of Colorado. If we can do all we can to push back on the federal government and the the holdups that they're providing, and some are happening within the state, then let's get storage going. Instead of studying it, continuing to study it, we need the water. We need to store it. We need to make sure that our farmers, our ranchers, the people along the front range, New developers that are putting affordable housing together have access to it. Now, of course, that water belongs collectively to the Colorado River state. So it's not a question of it being purely Colorado's. Do you want uh, the San Luis Valley to Douglas County water transfer project? I think think you're in Douglas County. I'm in Douglas County, but I've spent a lot of time in the San Luis Valley. And that is not a project that's going to see the light of the day. I don't believe there are so many people upset on both sides. So, you know, we've got to figure out a different solution. I mean, this is the intractability, though, of these massive projects that I know you say are being constantly studied, but, you know, they're held up because people I mean, well, they don't need to be held up for 20 years. That's ridiculous. So, yeah, I mean, we need innovation. We need creative ideas. We need communities to come together to solve these problems. And we've got to respect property rights. But we also have to look at communities and making sure that they can thrive as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. Republican Heidi Ganahl wants to be Colorado's next governor. Our guest tomorrow is the incumbent Democrat Jared Polis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you're a teacher who wants your students to appreciate music or a parent who wants your kids to think more deeply about it, we think you'll love CPR's podcast, Music Blocks. 
Music lovers at CPR developed it with help from educators covering all kinds of musical genres. Episodes are about five minutes long to fit into family time or classroom instruction. You can listen to the episodes in any order. Find Music Blocks everywhere you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A world-renowned extreme skier and mountaineer was laid to rest Sunday. Hillary Nelson died skiing down from a summit in Nepal last week. Her funeral took place at a Sherpa cremation ground. Nelson lived in Telluride in her beloved Rocky Mountains. She was featured in the PBS documentary series Kingdoms of the Sky in 2018. I mean, all mountains have a moodiness to them, have a personality, but the Rockies, the Rockies might take the cake. They're steep mountains, they're rugged. It keeps you on your toes. I think I could spend 10 lifetimes here and probably not do everything I would like to do in these mountains. My colleague Nathan Heffel spoke with Hillary Nelson when that documentary was released about the call of the mountains and the danger that comes along with. We just heard you say all mountains have a personality, a moodiness, but the Rockies might take the cake. Why is that? Well, I think I'm the most familiar with the Rockies, so I see all their moods for better and for worse. It's super unpredictable, and it's... uh, um, like that with the the snow, you know, there's plenty of times I've been caught in thunderstorms in these mountains when I'm skiing, even in the winter. Plenty of times that you start out on a beautiful sunny day and it ends in a windy blizzard and you just kind of have to be prepared for everything. Well, in this special that you filmed, uh, there's a section where you were trying to attack a particularly difficult mountain, which is part of the San Juan range. And I want to give listeners a sense of what you're up against. So here's a clip from that. In the heart of the San Juan range, Mount Sneffels is the highest peak for miles. At just 20 million years old, it's one of the youngest mountains in the Rockies and still growing fast. At over 14,000 feet high, the air is 40% thinner at the summit and the winds can blow over 100 miles per hour. But Hillary is determined to attempt it. What gives you that desire? What gives you that passion to go to places that are so extreme, that are so dangerous, and that could potentially do you significant harm? Well, I think it's all part of a, a philosophy of um, exploring myself and getting to know who I am. And more often than not, I'm, I'm climbing these peaks with other people in a team. And the human dynamic is fascinating to me. And the way you connect with people through adversity is very unique and uh, I hold it very dear (laughs) and I um, think that with all the distractions we have just moving through day-to-day life in the western world you don't often have those human connections and we definitely don't have those sort of 
rugged connections with Mother Nature and the outside as well. And so that's what I'm looking for. Uh, when you're up there, you're so connected to each piece of equipment, to each thing that, that is holding you to these mountains or, yes. or the skis that you use when you're skiing down the mountain. I mean, you must have to be in the moment so much. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think that's actually what I love so much about it is it's a way to not be distracted, to get off that like hamster wheel that I think so many people have going on in their heads. Me, I know for sure. Um, I'm always riding the hamster wheel around in circles. And when I'm in the mountains and I'm really focused and, and climbing something technical or skiing something really technical, and I have to be super focused on each turn and and also, you know, the, the changing weather and where I'm descending to and the avalanche conditions and all of that, it, it just raises all my senses to a very heightened feeling. And it's, it's amazing. You're really focused in the moment and that those distractions go away. What is your relationship with fear? I know you were the first woman to climb two 8,000 meter peaks in 24 hours, one of them being Mount Everest. Yeah. I mean, clearly you relish what you do, but, but there has to be this element of fear there, I would think. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of look at fear as sort of another tool similar to my skis or my ice axes or crampons, you know, and I, I think fear, I think we all need a little fear in our life because if you don't have it, then you're not really overcoming anything. Right. So, um, yes, I definitely get afraid and I have fear a lot and really it's about managing it and knowing how far I can push myself before that fear sort of spills over into panic because panic is really bad. Fear is, is healthy, but you definitely don't want to panic. That's, that's not so good. So I'm assuming you're also managing the physical pain that you go through as well as the mental fear and, and, and pain there. Right. Well, and physical pain is, I mean, again, it's sort of relative, I suppose, in terms of, you know, I've had a lot of injuries just being an athlete, my, you know, from basketball to soccer to skiing to running. And uh, I am always just curious how my body will adapt to certain situations. And I know I can adapt really well to high altitude, but at the same time, high altitude is like one of the most miserable things that you can experience physically because of the headaches and your, your fingers swell and your stomach hurts. And, um, it's, it's just super uncomfortable, but I've done it enough now that I kind of know the, the boundaries like fear, like I know the boundaries of where it's uncomfortable, but I'm still healthy and I'm okay versus it turning into like a real altitude sickness or something. Um, but um, it's like kind of the, the satisfaction afterwards is really worth it. Well, how much consideration do you give to conditions? I mean, like you've said, they can change really rapidly. I mean, are there times when you've chosen to go out in, in less than ideal weather and, and just hope it's going to get better? Oh, yeah, I've definitely done that a lot. And then and sometimes it doesn't. And you're just like, oh, this is this isn't worth it, you know, or you or you kind of change what your objective is on the fly because you start up something and it's just way too windy or um um, that it's colder than you thought or, you know, the, or uh, another really kind of dangerous time is springtime when the snowpack heats up and it starts getting hot is, you know, it, 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 
is also unique to Colorado and the Rockies is that you have these super cold nights, but then you have these temperature swings in the springtime of, you know, 50 degrees, 60 degrees sometimes. That's crazy. So you kind of, you just have to be aware of that. And, you know, I've never regretted really turning around on something. Do you learn something about yourself each and every time you, you do something like this? No matter how you best you prepare for anything there's there's always stuff that goes wrong and that's where adventure comes in and I guess that's where I kind of like to be and that's when I learn stuff about myself well I mean it's no fun when everything goes right (laughs) (laughs) well so so let's let's go there Uh, you know what what is maybe one of the worst decisions you've made out there but as you said maybe becomes a big adventure Uh, I remember one time unroping from my partner's before we reached the top and then one of my partners walked away from our camp and fell straight into a crevasse. But fortunately we were able to, you know, get her out. But it's just that thought process of like, well, there, there really was no reason to take the rope off. We just did it because it was convenient. And, um, but you learn, fortunately I've only been in situations that, uh, have been more like a wrist slap to some extent. I've walked away from those and you learn, you learn from mistakes and sometimes they're kind of more failures, but, uh, it's still, it still is part of life and, you know, you can't, you can't have the successes without the failures, I think. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Hillary Nelson speaking with CPR's Nathan Heffel in 2018. She lived in Telluride and died last week in a skiing accident in Nepal. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us. <laughs>